You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein. Today's episode, Prized Possessions. His multicolored coat, given to him by his father Jacob, was Joseph's prized possession. Although aside from a two-inch whittling knife and a pomegranate, it was his only possession. Just the same, when he wore the coat, he felt as though he were literally cloaked in his father's love, and so he strutted about as proud as a peacock. It was a nauseating sight to behold, and his brothers could hardly stand it. It wasn't that they were especially jealous of their father's love for Joseph, nor were they jealous of the coat itself, because mainly they found it pretentious, pimpy, and ill-fitting. It was just that when Joseph wore it, he became unbearably vain. It got so that all Joseph talked about all day was the coat. Do you have any idea how many colors are on this thing? Joseph would ask to anyone who'd listen. Eight? answered the butcher in the middle of his delivery. Eight? A multicolored camel-riding waistcoat might have eight. Try forty-seven, my friend. The chestal area alone is composed of buckskin, onyx beige, imperial brown, and cocoa. Do you have any idea what a pain in the neck it is to get your hands on cocoa in the desert? Multicolored coats were all the rage when their father was a boy, and had Jacob given any of his other sons such a coat, they would have thanked him politely, and then placed it in the back of their wardrobe, forgetting about it for all time. But not Joseph. He toiled, danced, whittled, and nibbled his pomegranate in his multicolored coat. It was bad enough the brothers had to look at Joseph's coat all day long, but on top of that, Joseph would not shut his mouth about the dreams he was having. Dreams he would have liked his brothers to believe were prophetic. Last night, I dreamt we were all binding sheaves of corn, he told them, all faux naively as they toiled under the desert sun. And all of your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. What do you think that means? His brothers ignored him. Did I mention that my sheaf was wearing a multicolored coat? asked Joseph. While his brothers were out working, Joseph often stayed behind with his father, who enjoyed having him dance for him. Jacob found it meditative to watch the multicolored coats swirl about. Joseph would spin until he was exhausted and out of breath. He would spin so fiercely that at a certain point it was as though he was no longer an object in the world, but rather had become pure color. One afternoon while dancing for Jacob, Joseph stopped to tell his father about another one of his dreams that he had had the night before. In this dream, he said, the sun and the moon and eleven stars all bowed down before him. What do you think that means? asked Joseph. Do you think, asked Jacob, not a little angry with his son, that I and your mother and your eleven brothers are going to start worshipping you any time soon? Joseph shrugged noncommittally, as though to say, Dreams, don't they say the darndest things? His son was beginning to give him a headache, so Jacob suggested that Joseph go out to Shechem to check on his brothers who were tending the family flocks. Because of his ostentatious coat, the brothers could see Joseph way off in the distance as he approached them from over the dunes. As they set their eyes upon him, their stomachs tightened with aggravation. Fellas, said Joseph, once he was within earshot, 
On the way over here, a group of shopkeeps told me that, would that a rainbow could vomit, its vomit might look a great deal like my coat. Isn't that the sweetest thing you've ever heard? You don't think this coat makes my ass look big, do you? Suddenly, operating like interconnected cogs in some greater machine, the brothers seamlessly and wordlessly set upon Joseph, hoisting him over their heads and stripping him of his coat. They then dumped him unceremoniously into a nearby ditch. I wonder if he prophesied that, asked one of the brothers. Then, without giving Joseph another thought, they all went back to their work. It wasn't until a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt rode by and asked for directions that one of the brothers thought of Joseph. In need of any slaves, the brother asked them. We have one who is a most wicked dancer, and he can delight you with tales of the most extraordinary dreams you've ever heard. The brothers were paid twenty silver coins for their sibling. The only thing left to do was to fake Joseph's death so that their father could have some closure. The brothers slaughtered a baby kid, and then drenched Joseph's coat in its blood. They would tell their father that Joseph had never reached them, that they had found his blood-soaked coat on their way home, and that he had probably been murdered by a band of thieves. So thorough were the brothers in soaking the garment, that when they brought it to Jacob, it was at first completely unrecognizable to him. It merely looked like a red coat. It was only when Jacob noticed the tiniest little speck of cocoa, right by the neckline, that he fell to his knees, weeping. I will go down to my grave, said Jacob, and still my tears will never cease. Jacob hung the coat on the wall above the dining table, so that he and his children could look upon it and be reminded of Joseph each night as they ate their dinner in silence. And for the next many years to come, without Joseph, everything in the world appeared to Jacob as though painted in shades of gray, even the desert sunset, when he bothered to notice it. Hi. I'm just getting rid of this other call. Can you just hold on to it for a sec? Yeah, of course. How are you doing? I was talking to my boyfriend. But is he is he excited about moving in with you? He has a totally different take on it. <laughs> you know, guys always want to like, great, let's just knock down this wall and we can put all the music up here and we'll have shelves and shelves of CDs and maybe we can get a bigger TV. And Like I live in a, a small walk-up in, in midtown Manhattan near the U.N., and I got to tell you, to to get to pare down my apartment for my boyfriend to move in, I, it, it seems like a huge arduous process. One of the hardest things that I'm struggling with right now, mm-hmm. I can't get rid of this white leather jacket. I bought it to celebrate my first sort of mature job. You know, now it's it's the, it's the time when your parents kind of go like this with their hands, and mm. they, they sort of like, you know, they're wiping them clean kind of thing, like, oh, phew, you know, that's over with. You're going to be financially independent. You'll start saving for your pension. You'll do smart things. You'll go on vacations. You know, you're, you're an adult. You've got the white leather jacket. And to celebrate, yes, you've bought probably the most impractical object you could possibly get. I mean, who wears a white leather jacket except Elvis? 
so I had been wearing it for a few weeks partying and having a great time going out, you know, going all over Manhattan with it. People would come up and touch it. It was strange. It was a bit like a petting zoo. They'd go, is that leather? Oh, my God, it's leather. And uh, it was men, tall men. It was usually men like over 5'8 that would make comments on this coat. Big, tall men would go, wow, nice coat. It made me feel kind of young and sassy and saucy and, like, free, very free. Yeah. Very, very East Village, very New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, wow, I'm on this path of maturity, and I'm, I can do what I want now. I, I felt like I could have been in a Verve video or something. Like, it, it, was, um, it was a very, very good feeling. I think the very first time I wore that white leather jacket to work was the day I got fired. Yeah, I, I, I got dismissed from my job, my first mature job. It takes a while to move on from that, it really does, especially when you had so much put behind it. Brought in the question whether I should be in the city, whether I was doing the right thing, pursuing the, every single thing that could be questioned was questioned. It's like opening the book and just pulling out every page. Afterwards, I looked at it as, like, something shameful. The jacket. Yes. I spent all this money on it, and and, uh, now I'm out of this job, and I still owe so much in my student loan, and how am I going to do it? And what the heck was I thinking buying a white leather jacket? I was so angry at myself that I could buy such an impractical piece. I believe I was probably even trying to clean it a little bit and thinking I could take it back. It represented something that I no longer was. It it represented uh, poor judgment and uh, living beyond your means, being the tall poppy. I couldn't wear that jacket for a long time after that. I, I couldn't even wear it. But you, eventually you were able to wear it again? When I started to wear the jacket again, mm-hmm. it's funny it kind of didn't feel the same. It felt sort of tight under the arms, and it felt like, you know, when I tied it around the waist, it was up too high, and it's not like I'd grown taller. I didn't feel as good in it as I did before. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't pull it off mm. the way I could before. Like, like, what, what are you going to do? Are you, do you, do you think you're, you're going to be able to throw it out or not? I don't know if I'm going to be able to get rid of it. I tell you the truth, I think I'm going to keep this code. Black leather jackets are a dime a dozen, but a white leather jacket, it just feels kind of like it still wants to have its day. You still want to be hopeful with it. It's white. Hey, Josh, this is going to seem like a crazy thing to ask you, but um, I, th- I think I'm going to need to borrow your cat. What? I, uh, I, I'm going to need to... Borrow my cat? Yeah. What for?
think I have a mouse, so um, I need I need to get your cat to eat it. To eat it. Or whatever cats do. Do you want my cat to come over and snack? Is that what you're saying? I want your cat to just kill this mouse and get it out of my place. No, no, my my cat is not a hired killer. All right, it's not a it's not a hit cat. It's my pet. It's it's the love of my life. And no way am I renting her out to you like some common street cat. Let your cat earn its keep, okay? That cat is like the most pampered, fat, spoiled cat I have ever seen. In my, it's like it's like it's you know what I mean. Like let him get some exercise. He you gets know, plenty let, of exercise. He gets no you. exercise. You don't even let him out of the house. Well, why should he go out there? There's dirt out there. You know, why don't you why don't you stop your ranting uh, long enough to even refer to the cat by his first name? That's the first uh, sign of disrespect you gave me. Is it, isn't it like Mr. or Mr. Mr. T, Mr. Bojangles? No, no, it's neither of those. In fact, there's no Mr. at all. It's like Senor or something. It's a ridiculous Faye name, isn't it? Faye? Yes. Huh, that's, that's interesting. Actually, because I consider his name quite vibrant. His name is Fluffles the Magnificent, and you will refer to him as such. All right, can I borrow Mr. Fluffles? Who's Mr. Fluffles? I don't know any Mr. Fluffles. Perhaps you're speaking of someone else. I have a cat here, but his name is not Mr. Fluffles. All right, fine. Understood. And, but, you, you, you know, actually, I remember when you first got this cat. His name wasn't Fluffles, as I recall. His name has always been Fluffles, the Magnificent. No, it was not. Do you remember what you initially called him? Uh, I don't know what you're talking You about. called him Death Ray. His name was you not thought De that that was a cool name. Do you remember? No, I don't, actually. We don't talk about that anymore. You know, you know who you are? You're one of those guys that when Cassius Clay changed his name to Muhammad Ali, always referred to him, to his face as Cassius, just to bait him. You know what I'm saying? Hey, what's up, Cassius? Hey, can I get your coffee, Cassius? Say his name. Can I borrow Fluffles the Magnificent? Finally. Okay, when can I come over to get him? Are you crazy? I'm not letting Fluffles Magnificent to you. No way. You know, I don't call him Fluffles the Easily Rentable. You know what I'm saying? It's Fluffles the Magnificent. He's the Pasha. He's the king. That's well below his station. He's an aristocrat. Please. No. Okay, this is... It's a terrible situation in my place. I'm, I'm like, sorry. Do you know I go to sleep at night wearing my shoes? You, you, you're afraid the mouse is going to bite your toesies? You're little... You know what? If you had a mouse in your house, you'd be in hysterics. You know why I don't have mice in my home? Because I have Fluffles the Magnificent. He, can, he once killed a cobra. He did not kill a cobra. I'm saying he went mongoose on that bad boy. Stop it. Anytime you ask me for a favor, I'm there. Mm. Hey? Remember who, who took you to the emergency ward at like 3 o'clock in the morning that time when you, like, when you thought you were having a heart attack and it turned out that you had swallowed air? My mom took me. Didn't I take you? No. I took, I, well, anyway, I've taken you to the doctor. No, I called you first, but you were drunk. Okay, look, do me a favor, please. I'm coming over. Do you have a? Uh, I'm, I'll bring a, a bag or something to put the cat in. Oh, really? You yes. coming on over? You bringing a bag? You got a little something going on, cat hag? You coming over with your words and actions, but you ain't gonna get satisfaction. Yeah, come on over. I got a cat, but I pull out my gat and make you rat a tat tat. You know what? I really don't like this new rap thing. Mm -hmm. It's ever since you got the satellite dish. It seems to be the only language you understand. When it comes in rhyme, that's when you have the time. You ain't taking this cat, you see? He's mine. You want to bring it? I can bring it. I'm not bringing it. What's the matter? You ain't got no cat? Meow, meow. My name is Fluffles. I'm so fly. I'm your cat. So why do you lend me out? I scream and shout. You want me to take the stupid mouse out? No, meow, meow.
Come on. Everything's always a big joke with you, and right now I really need some help. John, look, okay, uh, I'm going to... Look, I'm going to level with you, all right? I need some permanence in my life, okay? I've had a lot of... I've known a lot of people in my life. I've had a lot of friends. They've come and gone, some of them. Some have remained. Um, I've had lovers, and unfortunately... Okay, do me a favor, by the way. Don't, don't say you've had lovers, okay? Tell me you've had a girlfriend. Say you've dated someone. Don't tell me you've had lovers. I've had lovers. I've had... Stop saying that. This is the only tangible thing I have left from my relationship with Susie. She was our cat, okay? I remember beautiful sunny day, mid-April. We drove out to the SPCA. You know, we, 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 we looked at all the different cats there, and we picked out one that we thought was just... I don't know. It, it, was, it, it was just... Clearly, our cat, he was just was calling to us, and, and it, it's all I have left of her. You know, I can't let you take that from me. He's, he's not, he's not a, just a pet. Do you understand? That's right. It was you who had initially named the cat Death Ray, and then Susie decided that his name was going to be the Magnificent okay. Mr. Fluffles. It, it doesn't matter what his name is or was. All right. Okay? It's all that I have left of Susie, Okay. You have to understand, you know what you're asking of me? You want the the only thing in my life that unites me and Susie, even now. You want him out eating a disgusting, filthy sewer rat. Do you understand that the decaying flesh of a rodent doesn't speak to me of my enduring love? Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't want to get us on, onto the subject of Susie. I apologize for that, okay? I didn't realize it was going to take us there. I'm sorry. Nonetheless, I'm not going to be... I can't spend another night here with a mouse in the house. Really, Sam, I am? You, you can't eat jerky with a turkey? You can't sleep on a log with a prairie dog? Look, John, I, I, look, okay, I'm not insensitive. You can, you can, look, you can stay at my place, okay? I got, I got a couch. Really? Comfortable, yeah. I mean, just not, I just rented Terms of Endearment, and, uh... Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, it's, you want to, I mean, just come over and watch. You can sleep on the couch, and we'll, we'll go get a mousetrap tomorrow or something. All right, that sounds good. Okay, bye. Bye bye. Is, is something I got uh, when I was about seven years old, and uh, I keep it on my desk as a reminder uh, to myself of how to how I want to live my life and how not to live my life. I guess when I was about uh, seven years old, my father in, asked my brother, my older brother Kenny, and I if if uh, we wanted to go and play frisbee on the lawn of the Rhode Island State House. It was May, and, and there was just a huge grassy lawn. And it was probably about 1973, and uh, I, I imagine frisbee was a pretty popular sport, but I don't think I had really played it before. My brother Kenny, who's a couple of years older than me, had. And uh, I just couldn't, get, I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't get the hang of it, and I, I got pretty quickly frustrated and um, decided I didn't want to play. 
so as my brother Kenny and my father continued to spin the the disc back and forth to each other in these graceful um, flights, I kind of sulked. And so I sat down in the grass, uh, and it was this beautiful, deep green field of clovers, a couple inches deep probably, with just clovers and grass. As I kind of focused on the clovers at my feet, I picked through them, and uh, I don't know if I was looking for it or if it just occurred to me what I was looking at, but a tiny little four-leaf clover was there, and I picked it. And I kind of felt like I had won the lottery. I mean, it just, I knew that they were valuable. I knew that they were rare. And so I showed it to my brother and my father, and I was so elated. They kind of applauded, you know, that I had found this thing. And, and oh, boy, you know, wait till your mother sees, my dad was saying. And, and, and Kenny said, wow, you know, wow, Adam, you know, that, you know that means you get good luck for, like, the rest of your life. In my family, I was always the one who was kind of quiet and couldn't really compete with my, my two elder siblings. And so here, kind of, I had the limelight, and it, it felt good. And uh, I, I, I liked it, and I, I wanted more of it. And I knew that there was a couple of patches of clovers out back in the yard behind our house. So I set out to see if I could find another. I mean, I, I had to show that I, I, it was, this was not, this wasn't luck. I really was observant. I really was clever. And I really was, I did have this uncanny ability to see. So I sat down and I looked through the, the patch of clovers, but I, um, obviously I, I came up with nothing. The funny thing is that if you, if you spend enough time staring at clovers or weeds that look like clovers, you, you kind of start to notice the way they're built. There's three leaves with a, with a stem right up the middle with kind of a spine that runs down the middle of each leaf. You know, you got three leaves. I tore one whole leaf off, and then I took the other leaves, and I kind of just split them from, from the top end right down to where they meet the stem, and then I would leave it hanging on. And I did that to the other side, too, and kind of spread them apart a bit so it seemed that they were autonomous leaves. And it kind of looked like, you know a four-leaf clover, if you use your imagination or squint from a distance, small green. I just wanted the praise so bad, you know, and uh, I took the thing and I went home and I just showed my parents just like I found another one. <laughs> and uh, I, I got the praise again. I was like, no, you're kidding. Oh, my God. And I think they probably immediately recognized that this was, you know, a massacred remnant of what had been a three-leaf clover that was crudely fashioned to look like a four-leaf clover. But they didn't react that way. They, they said, wow, such luck this child of ours will have. You know, it, was, it just felt great. This hidden talent would, had been discovered. It doesn't matter that I can't play frisbee. How many kids out there can 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 bring these in? So I went back out to the clover patch, and uh, and I made another, and I made another, and then I made another, mm. and uh, brought them in. 
casually probably tossed them on the table. Here's one for you, Claire. Here's one for you, Kenny. Here's two. <laughs> Mom, here's five. I got five for the clovers, and they're just for you. Um, you know, I, I, I was just harvesting four-leaf clovers for the family at this point. My mother laid all of the clovers out on, you know, page 382 of The Joy of Cooking and then closed the cover and piled something on top of it and uh, decided that we'd press them and save them and, and that was it. It was probably two months later that I saw them again. Um, that, was, that was in May. My birthday's in July, so my father had something special for me, he said. So I opened this gift, and I, I, was, I was completely horrified. In my hands, I had a, uh, a, a piece of acrylic uh, shaped uh, in, a, in a circle, cut off at the bottom so that it could sit on a countertop. And inside it, there was one four-leaf clover and eight uh, very fake four-leaf clovers. And when I looked at it, I just, I thought, oh, no. The permanence of these things suspended in plastic like, like some kind of a fossil you see at National History Museums, these, these, these little fractured pieces of clover were, were encased and, and would be. And I, I could sense, I could feel the complete immortality suddenly of my lie. I think for the first nine years or so that I had it, I actually kept it hidden away. I, I had it in a box in the attic, and uh, deep in the box in the attic, I, I don't think I wanted to see it for a long time. I actually kind of was ashamed of it. And then uh, I think later on when I was in college, I, I found it again, and I, I started to see it as something else. I use it as a paperweight. It's kind of on the piles of unpaid bills that stack in front of me and and it, it it's comforting oddly but it's it's also not it's a bit of a warning in a way it, it's a it's a it's it's like a threat kind of a reminder of how even the most harmless lies can become kind of take on a certain you know weight literally and uh it communicates something to me without words because it's it's so layered you know Something as basic as, you know, yes, it's don't tell lies. They get complicated to, you know, a reminder of the degree to which my family loves me and will support me. I think that if my parents had just called me out, you know, if the family had just said, okay, now, buddy, these aren't real four-leaf clovers, it wasn't on their minds, you know. They weren't looking, they weren't looking to correct me. They, they didn't see it as a priority. I think that their feeling was... If the kid's making the four-leaf clovers, who are we to point out to them that they're not the real thing? What is that going to really accomplish? It didn't matter. It was something that I had done. He, he, my dad just wanted to do something to celebrate it. I enjoy the object now because I'm, I'm a father now, and, and my daughter's not old enough to, to really... <laughs> to lie, not, not, not quite that much. But I think that it was really good parenting. And, uh, and so I think I value it as, 
as a reminder of, of what it is to be a really good parent, too.